Hello and welcome to Sowing the Seeds of Change, where we explore the ideas that are forming our future reality. My name is Dr. Rosalind Savage. After an environmental epiphany 20 years ago, I left a corporate career to row solo across three oceans, using my adventures to raise environmental awareness. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with how we create a better world. On this show, I talk with scientists, philosophers, economists, and activists about how we create a thriving world for people and planet. Normally, the things we fight over, we fight over for a very long time. So for instance, in America, in my entire life, we've been discussing whether or not to have national health care for people. And it's a sin and a shame that we don't. And people, you know, go bankrupt or die every year because of our failure to match what other countries around the world have long since done. But when we finally get around to doing it, the fact that we failed to do it for all those years won't make it harder to do. You know, it will still be there to work on. And climate change really isn't like that. If you don't solve it fairly quickly, in fact, very quickly, then you don't solve it at all because you pass a series of tipping points that are irreversible. Nobody has a plan for freezing the Arctic again once it's melted. My guest this week, Bill McKibben, is a contributing writer to The New Yorker, a founder of the grassroots climate campaign 350.org and the Schumann Distinguished Professor in Residence at Middlebury College in Vermont. He was the 2014 recipient of the Right Livelihood Prize and the Gandhi Peace Award. Bill has written over a dozen books about the environment. His first, The End of Nature, was published 30 years ago now. He lives in the mountains above Lake Champlain with his wife, the writer Sue Halpern, and he spends as much time as possible out of doors. In 2014, biologists credited his long and distinguished career by naming a new species of woodland gnat in his honour, and I'm going to try and pronounce it, Megophthalmidia mckibbenai. As I mentioned later in our conversation, the first time I met Bill was at the Blue Vision Summit in Washington DC back in 2009 and he absolutely blew my socks off with his combination of solid science and electrifying passion. Then we marched together in Copenhagen in December of that year during the COP15 UN Climate Change Conference under the banner of 350.org. Bill is one of the most tenacious eco-warriors I know and a great inspiration to me. In this conversation, we talk about climate change, of course, but also oil companies, denial and disinformation, the Koch brothers, Greta Thunberg, solar power, the work of science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson, New York, Washington, COP26, the book of Job, nuclear bombs, the role of over 60s in climate activism, and bushwhacking. And I don't mean the former president. So hi, Bill, and welcome to Sowing the Seeds of Change. It's great to see you again. Many, many thanks for having me on this uh, extraordinary operation that you've got underway. Thank you. Yeah, it feels like a long time since we um, first met at the Blue Vision Summit and then spent some time hanging out together in Copenhagen during COP15 way back in 2009. 
way back when in a dismal in a dismal session that did nothing to advance the <laughs> world's efforts on climate change but it did allow a lot of people to come together and meet and plan activism and all of that yeah, we'll come back to that later on. Um, but I wonder if we can kick off with the first question that I ask all of my guests, which is, what is your favourite quote and why? I've always liked something that uh, the American political leader, uh, Norman Thomas, once said, there, there are no lost causes, only causes not yet won. And I hope that that turns out to be true in climate change. That may be the um, the real test of that maxim, because this one we have to win pretty quickly. But um, let's hope that he's correct. Yeah, that was really the first thought that came to me when I read that quote, which I hadn't come across before. Because in my experience, most big challenges tend to take longer than expected, like rowing across oceans. And with an ocean, it doesn't matter so much how long it takes. But as you say, climate change is an extremely time-sensitive cause. So how do you manage to maintain this philosophical attitude rather than getting sort of caught up in the urgency and despondency of this? Well, I mean, I, I guess because we don't have much choice and because we have to do everything that we can without knowing really whether or not we're going to prevail. It is different than normal political questions. Normally, the things we fight over, we fight over for a very long time. So for instance, in America, in my entire life, we've been discussing whether or not to have national health care for people. And it's a sin and a shame that we don't. And people you know, go bankrupt or die every year because of our failure to match what other countries around the world have long since done. But when we finally get around to doing it, the fact that we failed to do it for all those years won't make it harder to do. You know, it will still be there to work on. And climate change really isn't like that. If you don't solve it fairly quickly, in fact, very quickly, then you don't solve it at all because you pass a series of tipping points that are irreversible. Nobody has a plan for freezing the Arctic again once it's melted, you know? So, I mean, maybe the other quote that <laughs> that one could use uh, or set in juxtaposition is something that uh, Martin Luther King said at the end of many, many of his speeches. Uh, he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Barack Obama liked that so much that he had it embroidered in a carpet in the Oval Office. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which means I think this may take a while, but we're going to win. And, and that was a very comforting thought for the very brave people of the civil rights movement. The arc of the physical universe appears to be short, and it seems to bend toward heat. So if we don't win quickly, then we don't win. And the scientists have now put a, a kind of timeline on that. You know, in 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, our, our world's experts on this topic, put out a report saying that unless we cut emissions in half by 2030, then the targets we'd set in Paris just six years ago were going to go by the board forever. Uh, 2030 is now, what, eight years and change away. That's not much time to upend the order of business on planet Earth. Indeed. And it's really, like, given the title of this podcast, Sowing the Seeds of Change, I'd really like to home in on how change happens 
in in your universe. I'm thinking back to the time when I first heard you speak and I remember almost feeling like I was flattened against the rear wall of the auditorium by the the passion of your your talk at the Blue Vision Summit in Washington DC all those years ago and it was just so invigorating to hear somebody who could really marry the the solid scientific grounding with it seemed like this unstoppable passion for change, for activism, for political engagement. But I know you don't just write about politics, you also cover economics and psychology and uh, media and, and even religion in your quest to find ways to leverage this change. I'd be curious to know, where do you think change comes from? Does it come from appealing to the politicians? Does it come from the grassroots? How do we reach that cultural tipping point? We know all about the environmental tipping points, which are big and scary. How do we reach that cultural tipping point where we suddenly have a massive outbreak of common sense and actually start to respect the laws of nature? Well, it's a very good question. And I think that the um, problem with climate change has been less our ability to reach common understanding and more a dedicated effort to make sure that we didn't. So, you know, I wrote the first book about climate change, it came out in 1989, a book called The End of Nature. And that was right at the beginning of human understanding of our peril, at least in public. There were scientists who've been working on it for a while. And at the time, People everywhere immediately kind of understood that we faced a great threat and we're ready to go to work on it. Time magazine put a picture of the planet on its cover. And it, instead of having a man of the year as it always had had, it had a planet of the year, you know. Um, the Republican president of the United States, George H.W. Bush, said, We will fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Uh, you know, people were ready to get down to work. And you would have expected that that spirit of cooperation would have continued and grown, but it didn't. And we now understand the reasons that it didn't. In the 1980s, while I was writing that book and while scientists like Jim Hansen were carving out the important science around climate change, uh, the same kind of research was going on at the big fossil fuel companies. We know now from great investigative reporting that companies like, say, Exxon, um, were busy trying to figure out what was going to happen, as you would expect. I mean, this was the biggest company on earth and their product was carbon. So of course they were going to investigate. And they had good scientists and their scientists told their executives what was going to happen. In fact, people have uncovered in the archives predictions from Exxon scientists for what the temperature would be and the CO2 concentration in 2020. And they were spot on. Um, and they were believed by those executives. Exxon, say, began building drilling rigs higher to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. But what they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Um, um, instead, they embarked across the industry on a multi-billion dollar campaign to build this kind of architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that would keep people engaged in a completely sterile debate about whether or not climate change was real. Uh, a debate, remember, that both sides knew the answer to. It's just that one of them was willing to lie about it. And it 
turns out to have been the most consequential lie in human history because it cost us 30 years when we could have been at work. And so the question became, could we build a movement with the wherewithal to begin to stand up to the power based entirely in money of the fossil fuel industry? And that's really what the last 10 or 12 years has been about. And I think that to a certain degree, it's really succeeded. The zeitgeist has begun to shift. Most people now realize that we do face a problem. They are pissed off, and correctly so, at the oil companies, and they want to see change happen. But we've waited so long that that change has to be very quick and dramatic and uncomfortable, and I'm not sure that there's going to be the appetite for that. We will see. Yeah, to the non-Americans, it can seem quite mystifying how climate change has become a politically polarised issue in the US. And as you just mentioned, it used to be that uh, back in the 60s on the, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, that environmental issues generated cross-the-aisle cooperation. How did it become a political issue? Well, so first, let's be clear. Things like the Clean Water Act only got bipartisan cooperation because people came out in huge numbers to demand it. Uh, the first Earth Day in 1970, there were 20 million Americans in the streets, so one in 10 of the then population. So yeah. you know, imagine Extinction Rebellion, but blown up by a factor of 40 or something. Um, politicians, including Republicans, had no choice but to act. The Things like the Clean Water Act were a threat to business and industry, but not an enormous one. All they had to do was make modest changes, put filters on smokestacks, catalytic converters on exhaust pipes, and they could continue on their merry way. But climate change was different. Um, it represented an existential threat to anybody, since there's no filter you can put on the smokestack. They represented an existential threat to anybody who owned an oil well or a coal mine. And those people came together um, in unprecedented ways to dominate our political life. So the biggest coal baron, the biggest uh, oil and gas barons in America were the Koch brothers. They owned the network of pipelines and refineries and things. Um, they also became the largest political donors by far in American political history. They essentially purchased one of our political parties, they and their fellows. So that's where, you know, rational action on climate change began to break down. It was you're no longer able to, to assemble a coalition of people willing to act uh, because too many people were owned. And, and that explains why, why we've had to do this in some level, patently absurd business of building movements. It does not make sense, Roz, that people have to go to jail over and over and over again to make our institutions pay attention to basic physics. But we do apparently have to do that over and over again because that's what's been going on. Yeah, and indeed, I know you spent, I think it was three days in jail um, during a, a nonviolent protest about what's going on here. I've been in handcuffs more times than I would have expected. And, you know, as I say, it's absurd, but that's what it is. So when we talk about people taking to the streets, it takes me back to Copenhagen in 
2009 or Hopenhagen as it was billed at the time when Obama had just been elected and it seemed that almost anything was possible and there was this massive convergence of activists on um, the Danish capital yet it felt like there were almost two Copenhagens. There was all of this energy and passion for change going on out in the streets and yet inside the walls of the conference centre it felt like there was a complete deafness to what was going on outside. So when you've got these really powerful vested interests what keeps you optimistic that protest can win the day? Well, you have to build much bigger movements than we built at the time of Copenhagen. I mean, that was just the beginning. 350.org, which was the first iteration of a global climate movement, had really launched the month before Copenhagen. We did 5,200 simultaneous demonstrations in 181 countries, and that was good. But we, but it wasn't. It hadn't yet had time or size enough to begin to turn the tide. So people just kept at it, building bigger, stronger movements. And we've watched many others kind of flood into this field and do fantastic work. Extinction Rebellion, the Sunrise Movement in the US, most beautifully, uh, the work of high school and junior high school students, exemplified by Greta Thunberg, who is wonderful and one of my favorite people on earth to work with. Also, the kind of analysis deepened among people building movements. We began to have very particular uh, lines of attack, taking on fossil fuel expansion, things like the Keystone XL pipeline that turned into huge movements that helped more people understand what was going on. Maybe most effectively, this vast fossil fuel divestment movement that's now become the largest anti-corporate campaign of its kind in history. We're at about $15 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested from fossil fuel, including you know, Oxford, Cambridge, as of last week, Harvard, on and on and on it goes. So we spread the fight in many, many different directions, broadened out the movement, um, and all of that has made it more effective, I think. Yes, it's great to see the momentum really building. And as you say, the young people are a great cause for hope and optimism with their activism. So you've received all sorts of honours and awards, including the, the Gandhi Peace Award and the Right Livelihood Award, and um, even had a Woodlands gnat named after you. Um, I thought I'd leave it to you to give us the Latin name of that. <laughs> I've forgotten it. But I was seemed appropriate that they would name a pesky insect uh, in <laughs> my honor. And I was very grateful to the biologist for having done so. <laughs> well, um, it sounds like a lot of leaders do need to have somebody buzzing persistently in their ears <laughs> if they're actually going to think about making any changes. So when you look back over your achievements of the last 30 plus years since the end of nature, do you feel like you are on track to achieving what you set out to do? No. Um, the hope was that we could stop the planet short of catastrophic heating. And clearly that's not going to happen. We're seeing truly dramatic 
and dangerous events around us unfolding now. The kind of things that I was warning about 30 years ago are now the headlines in the paper. So we see hideous fires, uh, insane flooding, um, accelerating rise in sea levels. At this point, we're not playing to stop global warming anymore. That's not on the list of options. We're playing to stop it short of the point where it cuts civilizations off at the knees. And it's a very open question whether we'll be able to do that or not. Uh, the momentum of these physical systems is enormous and scary. And against it, we still have a relatively puny band of people who are willing to devote all of themselves to making change as best they can. Sowing the Seeds of Change is brought to you through the generous support of Seeds, now growing together in a bioregion near you. Seeds is an experimental global collaborative community, learning how to collectively govern and regenerate our one home, this earth, one village at a time. Learn more at joinseeds.earth. So I'm going to go to one of my standard questions now that I ask all the guests just for a little bit of a, a light-hearted intermission. Um, Bill, I'd like to ask you, if you were a democratically elected king of the world for a day, what would be your first decree? Oy, such an odd notion for me, of course, because I, I, I tend to think locally and, and uh, but I think that we have one great miracle to work with, and that's this advent of cheap renewable energy. And so I, I think my my decree would be it's time to stop burning things on planet Earth, coal, gas, oil, and rely instead on the fact that the good Lord put a large orb of burning flame 90 million miles away. And thanks to great scientists and engineers, we know how to use that to harness directly the rays of the sun and indirectly the winds that those rays cause to blow. You know as much about the wind as anybody else. Um, <laughs> I um, have some experience. <laughs> those things are, uh, are completely capable of powering our lives. And really, they're a there's something beautiful and miraculous about them too. And I don't think we necessarily recognize that in the West quite as easily because, you know, I'm happy with the solar panels and the roof above my head, but they didn't change my life. You know, I already had light. Um, but I, a few years ago, I got to go to Africa uh, to do some reporting for the New Yorker about the spread of solar energy there. There's, there's still about a billion people on the planet without access to electricity. Um, most of them in Africa. And they're not going to get it anytime soon if they depend on building out the grid. It won't, the UN says there'll still be a billion people by the middle of the century. But solar power is dropping in price so fast that it is now allowing people in all kinds of remote places access to electricity. And when you see it there, you really get a sense. Ross, I was sitting in a um, village in Ghana, remote rural part of Ghana, near the equator. So it was very, very hot. I'm, I don't deal that well with heat. I live in the Northern mountains, you know, so I was hot and sweating and the, I was sitting with the elders who had installed a solar system in their village the day before, just 40 panels and rudimentary wiring to each hut. But 
So these guys kept handing me um, bottles of cold water to drink, for which I was very grateful. But it took me a while to figure out in my kind of clueless Western way why they were so proud to be doing this until the day before when those solar panels went up. There'd never been anything. There'd never been a refrigerator in that village. There really had never been anything cold, you know. Um, and that was a kind of revelation to me, the realization that what it meant to live in a moment when you can basically point a sheet of glass at the sun and out the back comes cold and light and information and all the things that we count as modernity. Um, that's a pretty remarkable moment. Um, and it's sort of a Hogwarts level magic, you know, and if we were smart, this is what we would devote our time as a species to right now, spreading this blessing to every corner of the planet just as fast as we possibly could. Which benefits the the humans as, as well as the planet, which really is the only way that this is, is going to work. Sounds good to me. So I know that you and I share an appreciation of Kim Stanley Robinson's work, the science fiction mm -hmm. writer. And a couple of themes from his work that I'd like to pick up on. One is his most recent book, and I, I know that you did a conversation with the uh, the New Yorker um, or New York Times. The New Yorker oh, I, in their podcast. Yeah. And I got to review his the Ministry for the Future for the yeah. New York Review of Books, too, which was a great pleasure. It's a very rich book. It is. And I was particularly interested in the idea of the carbon coin to re-engineer the incentives of the economic system, because it often does feel at the moment, even the, the pricing or the valuation of ecosystem services, which I know is trying to help fix the problem, but it does also sometimes feel like we're trying to fix the problem from within the system that created it. Um, do you think that the economy or a new alternative kind of economy could be the, the key that could be a game changer in our fight against climate change? I mean, I don't know whether that particular tool is going to emerge, but I think that his emphasis on the fact that things like central banks were going to play a major role going forward is already being proven right. Uh, these are increasingly key players. The Biden administration is moving hard to make uh, financial agencies big parts of where we're going and so on. So, yeah, I think as usual, uh, Stan was ahead of game in his thinking here. And I think in a larger sense, he's always been a very important writer. He was best known as a kind of writer of science fiction. His original triumph was a trilogy about the settling of Mars, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. But those were, if you read them, and I, I did with great interest, they were much more political science than science science. And they were about the interesting questions of how humans organize themselves to govern themselves, to deal with crises and problems and things. And he's been very, very smart about that from the beginning. The other of his books that I would highly recommend especially for people like me who love New York City, is a book called New York 2140, which may be my favorite of his books. And it's an oddly jaunty, cheerful account of life in New York once the waters have risen um, and worth very much people reading and thinking about. 
And another trilogy that he wrote that I listened to while I was rowing was the the Science in the Capital trilogy, which is set in the fairly near term future. And in that trilogy, there is a big storm on the East Coast and the Washington Mall gets flooded. And fairly soon after that, an environmentally aware president gets elected. And it made me wonder about these catalyzing events where there is such an unambiguous message from Mother Nature that we go, oh my word, actually nature is powerful and we can't trifle with it. We can't indefinitely flaunt the laws of physics and get away with it. But as you mentioned earlier, like the wildfires and the melting ice caps and all of the evidence that we're seeing that the planet is changing, and it still feels like we haven't had a sufficiently major catalyzing event that we're going to wake up en masse. So, Bill, what's it going to take? It feels like we've gotten our share of events that should have been sufficient to catalyze us. And I think that really, I think we've actually kind of gotten there, you know, um, between the wildfires in the West and in many other parts of the world and the great storms that have come, Katrina, Sandy, Ida this year, drenching New York uh, after it hit Louisiana. The polling indicates that people are extremely ready for change and want action. The reason we're not getting it yet is because the fossil fuel industry has long figured out how to game our political system. Uh, and prevent change on that scale from happening. Um, we'll see how long they can keep it up. And of course, these meetings in Glasgow in November will be the next test of whether or not they're still in total control of the agenda. Yeah, that is going to be an interesting conference for sure. Here's hoping that um, something really positive <laughs> comes out of it. Roz, I forget, did you get, to, were you, you were at Paris, right, when that was going on? I was not. I was watching from afar. And that was, I mean, it's not as if the agreement that was reached was perfect or even all that good, but the um, work that activists did to insert in the preamble of that agreement, goal of 1.5 degrees temperature rise for the planet, that was accomplished entirely by activists, especially from low-lying island nations who said it was a matter of survival. That was very game-changing and and helped move the dialogue on uh, to the point where where it is now, where countries and companies are being more hard-pressed to come up with more ambitious plans. And I, one hopes that some of that will carry over into what's going on in Glasgow. It's going to be a very difficult meeting because COVID means it'll be very hard for those countries of the global south to attend in force and for activists to be there in the numbers that try to keep this process honest. You can be sure that the lobbyists for Exxon and BP and Shell will be on hand. Yeah, coming back to, to Exxon, which you've mentioned a couple of times now, <laughs> it makes me think about the nature of these big corporations, because I don't know a lot of oil people, but I know a few. I wonder if it comes back to that Upton Sinclair quote that Al Gore uses in An Inconvenient Truth, that it's very difficult to get someone to believe something when his salary depends on his not believing it. Look, I think at this point, it's pretty clear that at least as an institution, um, companies like Exxon have behaved in pretty despicable ways. They carried out this large disinformation project 
for decades and continue to. They're, they, one of their, their senior lobbyists was caught on tape earlier this year explaining that all their supposed now proselytizing for a carbon tax was in fact just a big ruse that they knew would never happen. And it was just designed to take the pressure off them, you know, but I, I think one has to assume that that's how people like that are going to behave. And the only thing you can try and do is make it more painful for them to continue doing that um, than to change. Exxon's not ever going to change. It knows how to do one thing, which is dig up stuff and set it on fire. But I think that some of the kind of auxiliary enterprises around them may begin to figure out how to change. So for instance, we're doing a lot of work now on banks and asset managers and insurance companies who supply the fossil fuel industry with endless amounts of capital. The big banks of the world have given the fossil fuel industry three and a third trillion dollars since the Paris Climate Accords. They didn't need Donald Trump to sabotage it for them. They were happy to do it themselves. JP Morgan Chase, the biggest bank in the world, has by itself given that industry more than a quarter trillion dollars since Paris. My last trip before the lockdown was to jail in DC, getting arrested in the lobby of the Chase Bank to set off, help set off the fight with these big financial institutions. And there, I think we may have more possibility. Exxon will fight to the last bridge. If you're JP Morgan Chase, yes, you make a lot of money lending to the fossil fuel industry, but it's still only six or 7% of your deal book, you know? So maybe you can figure out how to sacrifice that much in favor of the planet surviving. We shall see. We shall indeed. So in a moment, I want to turn to theology, um, but before we go there, Another one of my favourite questions. Bill, when was the, the last time that you did something for the first time and what was it? Last weekend, I got to some territory not that far from where I live, but that I'd actually never seen before. I was out. I, one of the things I like to do is um, what we call in this country bushwhacking, uh, hiking without trail, you know. I, I was off in the Adirondack woods where I've spent much of my life. The Adirondacks is the biggest wilderness in the in the eastern U.S. Uh, it's the size of Glacier and Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and Yosemite combined. So there's, even though it's in upstate New York, so there's plenty of room to move around. And, and so I just set off from the back door of our house and with a dear old friend of mine. And we uh, spent a couple of days just crashing through un tracked forest. So we got to a lake that neither of us had ever seen before. And that was really great pleasure. And along the way, we encountered snapping turtles, beavers, and moose, and bear, and, uh, you know, all kinds of friends. So that was good. That sounds like really hard work, but a really beautiful way to connect with this beautiful planet that you're working with. Yeah, I tend to, I, I like I like bushwhacking because when you're walking on a trail, at least me, I have a tendency to just kind of put my head down and keep walking and get, you know, more interested in the top of the mountain at the end of the trail or something like that. But when you're bushwhacking, you really are kind of paying more attention to the forest around you. You have to a little bit to keep on some kind of direction. 
and uh, and so you're really reading the topography and thinking about the landscape and noticing the tracks in the mud and so on and so forth. Yeah, and using all those parts of the brain that humans used to have to rely on so heavily. I was reading that the size of our brains has actually decreased by... 10% since prehistoric man. And I, I I wonder if it is that part of the brain that actually really pays attention and notices where we are and what wildlife is around us and yes. engages. Either that, or, either that or just looking at Facebook shrinks your brain. <laughs> Yeah, I was fascinated to see when I was researching for this podcast that you were born in Palo Alto, which mm. seems like quite beautiful juxtaposition and or the universe has a great sense of humour. Yeah, I didn't get to live in California too long. Uh, we'd left for the East by the time I was starting school. But I do have kind of ancestral, you know, memories of beautiful, you know, the beautiful redwoods and so on. But I've become very much a creature of the American East, and I like the dense forests and smaller mountains and harsh seasons and things that come with uh, life in the northeastern U.S. It really is my, my world up here. Sowing the Seeds of Change is brought to you through the generous support of Seeds now growing together in a bioregion near you. SEEDS is an experimental global collaborative community, learning how to collectively govern and regenerate our one home, this earth, one village at a time. Learn more at joinseeds.earth. So I, I threatened that we were going to turn to theology, which was an aspect of you, Bill, that I hadn't really known about before. And, and your book, The Comforting Whirlwind. And you write about how, as humans, we essentially need to get over ourselves and recognise that the universe does not revolve around us. Um, I wonder if you could share more about that. Well, sure. I mean, I grew up in the Protestant Christian tradition in which I remain. And I think that it's filled with uh, calls to right behaviour. But the, the one that appeals to me the most is the and, and is the oddest in many ways is the book of Job in the Hebrew Bible. And you probably remember the story of Job. He didn't have much fun, did he? Well, he, he was a good man and, and had a good life, but then he found himself cursed and all his flocks died and his family died. And he found himself living on a dung heap at the edge of town covered with oozing sores. And he wanted God to explain why this had happened and kept demanding that he appear and do so. So eventually God did, and God gave the longest soliloquy that I think appears in God ever gave in the Old Testament or the New. Um, and it's a long, long, very beautiful speech. I highly recommend Stephen Mitchell's remarkable translation. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful account of the natural world, crunchy and sexy and biologically accurate and very, very beautiful, all about wildness. And he summons up the ostrich and the vulture and the lion and the antelope, and uh, it couldn't be more beautiful. But it's also very, very sarcastic. Job has summoned him here, and God is in a sarcastic mood about it. He's taunting him. If you're so smart, tell me, where do I uh, keep the storms? Can you tell the proud waves, here you shall break and no further? And Job 
you know, eventually just says, sorry, I asked, can I sit down now, you know, because um, <laughs> he's in the he's in the position that all human beings have been in for all of human history. That is small compared to the largeness of the world around them. Probably the feeling that you got to feel more than most people ever do um, out in the middle of the ocean. As a species, that no longer describes us. Uh, beginning perhaps with the explosion of the first atomic bomb at Alamogordo in New Mexico, um, we've been suddenly quite large. Uh, it was Oppenheimer watching that explosion who quoted from the Hindu scripture, from the Bhagavad Gita, we are become as gods, destroyers of worlds. Um, so far, we haven't managed to blow the world up uh, with nuclear weapons, thank heaven, and we've because I think we could imagine the damage that would result. But we've had a harder time imagining that the explosion of a billion cylinders inside a billion pistons every second of every day could accomplish the same kind of damage, and yet it has. I mean, we've melted most of the sea ice in the summer Arctic. Uh, we've changed the chemistry of the seawater. Uh, we've changed the way that hydrology works on the planet, the way that water moves around, evaporates, uh, falls. So we've gotten very, very, very large. Now we can answer God right back. Yes, in fact, we now do tell the proud waves where to break by pursuing our current political strategy. We'll raise the sea level a few meters before the next century or two is out and drown most of the coastal cities on the planet. So that's fairly that's fairly godlike behavior, albeit a particularly stupid and blundering God. And so, I mean, it does seem to me that one of our jobs is to figure out how to make ourselves somewhat smaller and fit back in to the world around us. And it's going to take a while, but clearly to me, renewable energy is one of the ways to do that to begin to connect ourselves again to the rhythms of the planet around us as we live our lives. Yes, there has been this sort of at the same time, this false humility of where humans are too small to make a difference, but then also this sort of hubris of just carrying on as we are, even in the face of very strong evidence that it's a really catastrophically bad idea. And it feels almost like we have the collective mental age of a teenager and we're due for some sort of a rite of passage into maturity. And I'm curious as to what that rite of passage might look like. I think some people wondered if COVID and the enforced pause button that it, it puts on business as usual might be an opportunity for um, a rethink and uh, like it, the effect of almost being sent to our rooms, you know, to um, yes. <laughs> come back when we can behave better. But it's and not looking it that way. Certainly COVID is a strong reminder that physical reality is real. And that's something we tend to forget in a world abstracted by screens where we spend most of our lives looking at images of things instead of at things. It's easy to start to believe that the phys the real world isn't so real. COVID is a good reminder of that. You know, biology sets the rules. These are arguments in the end at root between human beings and physics or biology. And physics and biology 
don't negotiate. They don't compromise. They don't meet you in the middle. They just do what they do. And if you insist on believing that they will, then you die up to a ventilator or you, you know, live on a world where the temperature gets so high that it's, if it's not exactly hell, it's roughly the same temperature. Um, I'd just like to sort of push back gently a little bit on that. And I, I know that the conversations around COVID and climate change and so many other things can get very heated in so many ways. But essentially, we're all in this situation together, whether it's climate change or whether it's COVID. And it sometimes feels that when we other certain groups of people... How can we suspend that judgment for a moment and, and remember that this affects all of us and different people have different ways of dealing with situations, often dependent on the place and circumstance and nature of their upbringing. And that who knows if you or I were born into their, their situation, their family, their culture, we might also react in a certain way to certain provocations or situations. How do we remember our shared humanity in this? First thing is, don't remember it so much that you um, run up and uh, uh, embrace someone who decided not to wear a mask. I've lived my whole life in rural America, uh, red states and blue states. And so I, I you know, I, and I know that it's peopled by all kinds of good and interesting people who are capable of great stuff. I also know that over the last 20 or 30 years, you know, forces like Fox News and the Koch brothers and stuff have conspired to make people stupid and mean in lots of ways. Um, they've done their best to bring out the worst parts of human nature that exist in all of us, instead of doing the work of bringing out the best parts of human nature, which is the work of civilizations. You know, civilizations are the way that we figure out how to bring out the parts that are good in us and allow them to work. And and so I have no patience for people who insist um, behaving in ways that endanger others, whether they're oil executives. Or people, you know, launching podcasts to explain why you shouldn't wear masks. Those don't seem to me to be the things that are best about our species. And so I'm grateful that there's lots of people who are standing up in other ways. I've been very lucky. The state where I live, Vermont, though the most rural state in America, is uh, is highly sensible. Um, our Republican governor did a great job of just respecting science. Everybody wore their masks. We had by far the lowest death rate of almost any place in the Western world. Kids were able to go to school. It's been okay. And it's a reminder that if we actually just did normal, rational, sensible things, we could get out of the holes that we're in. Um, and so I, it annoys me when people refuse to do easy, rational, sensible things, put up solar panels, wear masks, whatever. Perhaps that's some um, that's mean-spirited of me, but I, I actually, I think that human beings are quite uh, interesting, good, creative species, and I like us a lot, But and, which is why when we behave like idiots, um, it depresses me. 
and coming back to Kim Stanley Robinson's writing, um, his view of the future, um, humans haven't really changed so much. It seems like uh, no matter what the situation, we still manage to find stuff to disagree over. Um, well, Bill, it feels yeah. like it's... And people get to disagree over things. They just don't get to disagree over basic physical facts in the world. Uh, like if you breathe on me, I'll get your germs. Or if you burn uh, oil, it produces CO2 whose molecular structure traps heat. These are the basic, you know, these are basic constraints that aren't open to disagreement or debate. They're just reality. And our unwillingness to face reality, those, you know, when people are unwilling to face it, well, I, I mean, it's it's beneath us as a species that understands the world in those ways. You know, it's just foolishness. I hear you, Bill. And maybe I'm too idealistic or Pollyanna-ish about this, but I, I don't think that most people are mean or stupid. I think most people are doing their best, I don't think so either. but they may be misinformed and misled by people, by powerful people who have a very vested interest in misleading. I them. think that's. Misleading. I think that's absolutely correct. We're in a hundred percent agreement. I, as I say, I like human beings, and I dislike those who lead them astray uh, for their own profit and gain, whether they're. Exxon executives or Donald Trump or whoever it is. Well, it's certainly been a wide-ranging conversation. I think we've covered <laughs> the environment, politics, economics, religion, psychology, technology, the media, and um, bushwhacking. <laughs> um, we haven't talked as much about rowing as we might have. That's, you know. Well, you're welcome to turn the tables on me in a moment. Um, but just before we get to that, Bill, is there anything else that you really wanted to talk about that I haven't given you an opportunity to share? The thing that I'm working on hardest now, Roz, is, you know, having started 350.org with seven college students and helped build out a lot of the sort of support and work on a lot that's kind of wonderful youth movements around the environment. I'm now devoting most of my time to working with older people like me, uh, those of us who are over the age of 60. And we've launched this new effort called thirdact.org. Uh, that's going to try and get the vast demographic in in America. It's you know we add ten thousand people a day crossing that sixty year old line um, into the fight for progressive change on climate justice and on racial justice. We have this tendency to believe that people get more conservative as they age, and there's some evidence for that. But this is also a cohort, the baby boomers, the silent generation above them, that the first act of their lives was rich and interesting in transformation, the civil rights movement, women's movement, the anti-war movement. Second act, maybe not so much. Maybe people spent more time being consumers than citizens, you know. But now they emerge with a lot of skills and resources and some grandkids, and hence uh, perhaps a desire not to be the first generations in the world that leave the world a worse place than they found it. And so I, I hope that we're able to rally uh, older people to work on these questions. Certainly, we've got um, no time to waste. For sure. Well, I'm <laughs> rapidly approaching 60 myself, um, and I really look forward to see how that, <laughs> that shapes up. So, um, 
final part of our conversation today then is where we turn the tables. Is there anything that you wanted to ask me? Well, I just, you know, we just came off last week, this win at Harvard over on divestment from fossil fuels that took 10 unrelenting years of effort by students and faculty and alumni and others pushing hard, just endlessly. And it, I was sort of thinking about it today and writing a little bit about it and struck me really that persistence is often the greatest of human virtues. And, and it seems to me you're more positioned to talk about persistence and perseverance than, than most people. Because <laughs> um, that seems to me what uh, uh, your great oceanic feats um, uh, involved as much as anything else, perhaps, no? Well, yes, although I feel like you are also a great role model of perseverance and, and persistence. Um, yeah, I think there's great metaphorical value in the in my ocean rowing adventures that it took me about five million oar strokes to row across three oceans. And one oar stroke really didn't get me very far, just a matter of a few feet. And there were times when it felt like I was going nowhere. And there were times when I literally was going nowhere. I was actually being blown backwards, uh, which was pretty demoralising. And I guess I, I would say that um, it's fortunate that it's logistically very, very difficult to quit in the middle of an ocean. Or else there are many, many times that I would have done if catching the bus home would have been an option. <laughs> um but somehow I had to hang on in there. And what I really take away from that is that even though each action that we take, uh, you know, each oar stroke taken or each march organised or each article written may feel really tiny and almost insignificant in the face of the challenges that we're facing. And actually, I'm working on a, a new book called The Ocean in a Drop, which is a response to the many people who came up to me at the end of my environmental talk saying, well, what can I as one person amongst nearly 8 billion do? Anything that I do is surely just a drop in the ocean. And so I really love that Rumi quote that you are not a drop in the ocean, you are the entire ocean in a drop. I think that's beautiful. And I think that as long as, especially if it realizes that, you know, we work with others. I always tell people when they ask me that question, I always say we're past the point where your individual action can actually solve climate change. We're not going to deal with the math of climate change one Tesla at a time, one vegan dinner at a time. The most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to make some kind of difference. That's where that power of persistence comes in because if there's enough of us working together there'll be moments when you need to tag out because you're burned out or sick or tired or whatever it is as long as there's some other people to tag in for you then the whole enterprise will keep pushing forward that's what a movement is i think absolutely and this image is coming to me of us taking all of our little individual drops and forming together into big waves of change you said it Beautiful. Um, thank you so much, Bill. This has been an absolute joy to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for all your wisdom and the amazing work that you're doing. 
back at your friend and thank you for this good forum that you've set up and, uh, uh, and, and what a pleasure to get to talk. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. You might be interested to know that we also publish the video of these conversations to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash sowing the seeds of change. Bill's latest book is called Falter. Has the human game begun to play itself out? Which Naomi Klein described as a love letter, a plea, a eulogy and a prayer. This is Bill McKibben at his glorious best. Wise and warning with everything on the line. Do not miss it. And you can find out more about that at Bill's website, billmckibben.com. <laughs>